Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear, and I will speak. I will question you, and you make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore I despise myself, and repent in dust and ashes. After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. Now therefore, take seven bulls and seven rams, and go to my servant Job, and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves. And my servant Job shall pray for you, for I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite, and Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Naamathite, went and did what the Lord had told them, and the Lord accepted Job's prayer. And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends, and the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Then came to him all his brothers and sisters, and all who had known him before, and ate bread with him in his house. And they showed him sympathy, and comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. And each of them gave him a piece of money, and a ring of gold. And the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. And he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 female donkeys. He had also seven sons and three daughters. And he called the name of the first daughter Jemima, and the name of the second Keziah, and the name of the third Karen Hapuk. And in all the land there were no women so beautiful as Job's daughters. And their father gave them an inheritance among their brothers. And after this, Job lived for a hundred and forty years, and saw his sons and his sons' sons four generations. And Job died, an old man and full of days. Well, we're at the end of Job. Um, I hope you found it beneficial as we've looked at it. Um, I, I kind of wish we'd spent a bit more time. Some of you might be quite glad we're coming to the end of this book. Um, but ten weeks for me does not seem enough to glean the wisdom that is found in this book. And, and as we've been saying each week, that it's so important to understand Job because Job is about having wisdom in suffering. And there's nothing more inevitable in life than suffering. Um, so before we go on to look at tonight's wonderful closing passage and the restitution of uh, our friend Job, who we've sat down with for 10 weeks, uh, listening to him mourn his suffering. I just want to recommend this book. It's called Out of the Storm by Christopher Ashe. Um, Christopher's stuff on Job has been tremendously helpful uh, to us who have been preaching on it. Um, This is his short book. It's um, well worth reading. Uh, He's got a bigger book called The Wisdom of the Cross. Um, And just for one summer, uh, I used that book. It was was basically a commentary on Job. I used it uh, to help me with my quiet times working through Job and 
it was a it was a great summer. Um, <laughs> it's not often you talk about reading Job during the summer and that being a high point, but it was for me. And Christopher's stuff's really excellent, really helpful. There's a lot of stuff that we have used from that. Uh, the title of tonight's sermon. Uh, comes from Christopher. So I'd recommend looking and uh, getting some of his stuff if you want to delve deeper into this book, which I hope we do. Uh, so tonight we're at the end, and we're going to see some big, big, profound cosmic truths about God's role in our suffering. But before we do, I wonder if we can just turn to James chapter 5. It should be on page 1013. 1013 of the church Bibles. James chapter 5. This is going to help us tonight. really going to set uh, the scene with regards to what we'll see in this ending of Job. James chapter 5 and verse 11. This is what James writes about the book of Job. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job. And you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. So that is what we learn from the book of Job. Endurance and the steadfastness of Job to endure through the hardships that God caused to fall upon him. And the compassion and mercy of God. Now, you may be thinking, now where on earth have we seen that in Job? Well, I would say that you see it all throughout the entire book, not least of which in God's speeches at the very end, but it really comes to the forefront here in Job 42. So, turn back to Job 42 with uh, James's words ringing in our heads. That's what he says you're to get from the book of Job. Job is an example of patient endurance, and what do we learn about God from the book of Job? He is compassionate and he is merciful. So Job 42. Here's the main point of what I want to say tonight from this passage. This is it. And it's a profound and a certain biblical truth. And it's this. In the end, everything will be all right. In the end, everything will be fine. Everything will be restored. In the end, everything will be all right. So you here tonight who are in church, you who follow Jesus, you who go through suffering in your life, suffering that is maybe not yet happened to you, but is coming, and you who are sitting here tonight who have suffered immensely or are currently suffering right now, and you who's, who may be sitting here and you feel like you're just lost in cold and holding on by your fingertips to the ledge of God's grace. In the end, everything will be all right. Endure, because God is merciful and God is compassionate. In fact, it'll be more than all right. It'll be glorious in the end. And let me emphasize the fact that what we're going to say tonight, what we see here in the book of Job, comes at the end. So this small but profound section in chapter 42 is a picture of what will happen eventually at the end for a believer. We see it happening to Job in his life, but what we're going to talk about is not something that's going to happen in our life, but it's something that's going to happen after we have died 
Because what we are going to look at is something more glorious even than the restitution we see here happening to Job. This happens at the end of the book of Job. Just remember, this is chapter 42. We have had 41 chapters of pain, of anguish, of confusion, of frustration, of anger. And this is what, this is what you may have in your lives. Lives of, of suffering. Lives of frustration, yes, there's going to be great moments of joy that we'll enjoy, but the frustration and the hurt will be there, and it will not be until the very end that everything will be all right and everything will be restored. The end is at the end. This is not something God will do in the middle of our lives. Restoration is the end of your story if you are a follower of Jesus here tonight. And I want us to feel the truth of this. And I want us to kind of not view this um, as a kind of fairy tale or a kind of false pipe dream. Some of you may think this is almost anticlimactic, the end of Job. But I want us to see that it's real and it's profound. So I want us to look at this passage. You'll see an outline on your service sheet, which would be helpful uh, as we kind of navigate through this. And I want us to see three things. Um, Firstly, we'll see what happened to Job. Secondly, we'll see how, how what happened to Job is a picture of what happened to Jesus. And then finally, we'll see what it means for us here today in Chalmers Church, how it's a picture of what will happen to us. So look at the first point there on your sheet. The suffering, then exaltation of God's servant. Look at what we see happen to Job here in uh, chapter 42. Three things. Firstly, we see that Job is humbled and repentant. Now, I don't want to spend too much time looking at these verses. You see that in verses uh, 1 to 6 there of chapter 42, because um, we looked at them last week. This is Job's response off the back of that magnificent speech we saw from God uh, in chapters 40 and 41. But I do want us to notice what Job is like here. In his mercy and in his compassion, God has humbled Job. And Job needed to be humbled because, he says himself, verse 3, he had uttered stuff about God which he did not understand, things too wonderful which he did not know. You see, suffering had blinded Job to the reality of who God was, and Job had said some stuff that was wrong. On the whole, Job is right. He is a good, godly man. He is unique almost in his godliness. But he had said some stuff that was wrong, stuff that he needed to repent of, stuff that that needed to be corrected. And in moments of great suffering, we need to not lose sight of who God is. That's what we're learning from God's speech at the end of Job. And sometimes the way that, that God helps us to see that is not often the way that we would want. Sometimes God helps us to see that by bringing us low, by getting us to see that he is God and that we are not, that he is in control and that we are not in control. And that is so essential. You see, to know that God is God and to live as if that is true is a certainty worth purchasing even at the great cost of suffering really is. To know that God is God and to live as if that's true is a certainty that is worth purchasing at the great cost even of suffering. I saw this great quote on Facebook. It's not often you see great quotes on Facebook, uh, but it's from Tim Keller. He's a minister in New York, and it's quite often you see great quotes from him. Uh, And he said this, 
and it really struck with me. He said, sometimes you don't really get that Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. Sometimes you don't really get that Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. If God hadn't corrected Job, Job would have remained proud. Job would have had his limited picture and a limited understanding of who God is. He would have viewed God more as his assistant than as his king and his creator. And we need to be brought to a place where we're just completely dependent upon God. We need to stop trusting in ourselves. We need the eternal truth and the cosmic vision of a creator who loves us and is in charge of every single thing that befalls our lives. We need to cry out to him in humble dependence like Job does. Job asking these why questions. Why God? Why are you doing this? Expressing the confusion and the sadness, but expressing it to him aware that we are still finite sinners and he is still God. See, Job's repentant heart here, just in these six verses, it shows us what kind of man Job is. He is a man who went through the most horrendous, unimaginable suffering possible. And yet he still trusts, he still loves God. Job is the real deal. He is a genuine follower of Jesus. Remember what James said? He is an example to us of patient endurance. And it's precisely because he is so humble and so repentant that we see the second thing happen to Job. Secondly, in verses 7 to 9, Job is justified and accepted. I love this bit at the end. I I love the whole ending of Job. Uh, When you've been sitting down with him for 41 chapters, seeing the anguish that he has gone through, probably for months, maybe even years. And it's great to read of this restitution. Do you remember, as we looked at the book of Job, do you remember one of the things that Job longed for in his speeches that he desperately longed to know was where he stood with God. He wanted to know that he was in right standing with God. The biblical term for that is justified, to be in a right standing with God. Job longed to know that God was his friend. Here we see that he is. Job was worried that somehow he had fallen out of favor with God. Um, Notice, first of all, what God does here. Notice that he has a go uh, at these three friends of Job. If um, you've been reading through the book of Job, Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar, these are are Job's friends, use inverted commas, uh, because Job calls them miserable comforters uh, or worthless physicians. They don't sound like great mates. And if you read what they say, you'll realize that they're not great mates. And they were accusing Job of some sort of sin that he had committed. And that was the reason why he was suffering. And they had spoken wrongly. They had tried to tie God up in a nice neat bow to fit their own little system of belief. And they had spoken wrongly. And Job had spoken right, but Job was alone. No one was there to defend him. But here God comes to Job's defense. You see, what Job repents for in these previous verses is not some sin that he committed that led to his suffering, as his pals thought. Rather, it's the sin 
he committed in his suffering. That's what he's repenting of. And that's why God says to Eliphaz, who represents the the three friends there in verse 7, he says this, My anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. Now therefore take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves, and my servant Job shall pray for you. For I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly. For you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job had. See, God's saying and declaring to these friends, Job is right. Job is right and you are wrong. This is what Job longed for. In chapter 13, verse 3, Job says, I would speak to the Almighty. I desire to argue my case with God. I want to hear from Him. In chapter 31, verse 35, Job cries out, Almighty God, please answer me. And God does. And not only does He vindicate Job, He's also humbling Job's friends here. You can see these wise, all-knowing gurus that were Job's friends getting incredibly embarrassed and their faces getting redder as they hear what God is saying. It's, it's, It's pretty funny, actually. God basically says, you guys are fools. And let me tell you something. You better hope Job prays for you. And Job does. And God accepts Job's prayer. And it's interesting, just interesting to note as well, that Job is almost kind of performing the function here of an Old Testament priest. He's been an intercessor for his friends. He's helping with the sacrifices, and it's God who accepts Job's prayer. God doesn't accept the prayer of Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, but God accepts Job's prayer as a unique role. He is a justified sinner who's been brought back into that relationship with God. Notice how many times the phrase, my servant, is used here. God said, Job is my servant. It's a title of intimacy and friendship, often used in the Old Testament. God saying, Job belongs to me. I said, Job wanted this. God is merciful and compassionate. God allowing suffering in our lives does not mean that he does not love or accept us. And at the end, Job knew that was true. And it was true for him all throughout his suffering. In the end, he sees he is justified and accepted. And let me say this, there is no greater act of compassion and mercy than the fact that God accepts and makes right sinful, rebellious human beings like you and me. Finally, we see uh, the final scene in verses 10 to 17. Job is restored and exalted. After Job prays, God restores his fortunes. Job's brothers and sisters, they come to his house, verse 11. They come for a meal. This is the first meal, the first celebration that has happened since the tragedy way back in chapter 1 when Job's children were having a meal in that house and it fell on them and killed them. They're back having a meal and their comfort in him, the help he needed from his three, three friends who'd let him down. Job's getting that comfort. And by the way, just the phrase there, I think it's worth pointing out, the evil that the Lord had brought upon him, that does not mean that God causes evil. We've seen that 
you can't say that when you read the book of Job. We saw that uh, all throughout explicitly. Last week we saw that. God is in control of evil, but he doesn't commit evil. And the Hebrew word there, ra'ah, could also be translated as calamity or disaster. So it was God who allowed this calamity to fall upon Job, and it's God who also restored Job and gave him that double blessing out of his grace and his compassion and his mercy. Number of sheep there uh, in verses 12. Sheep, the camels, the oxen, and the donkeys, they're exactly double of what Job had way back in chapter 1. Job had lost his children back in chapter 1, but now later on in life he has seven boys and three girls, and according to verse 15, Job's girls are absolute stunners. That's the Dundonian translation. Jemima, Kezia, lovely names. Karen Hapuch. That one's died out. I've not met anyone called Karen Hapuch. Um, But these are Job's beautiful daughters. And Job lives till he's 140, 140 more years. And he dies, an old man full of days. And the point at the end here is that Job's blessings, Job's life, was much greater than it was before his suffering. He is doubly blessed. He is exalted because God is compassionate and merciful. Now, let's not misunderstand this this last part, what's happening here. Job is not a follower of God because of what God can give him. We've seen that all throughout the book. Job wants God for himself. And before God gives these blessings to Job, there is, first of all, a restoration of that relationship. That's what Job wanted. Not the blessings. He wanted God. And then the blessings came as part of that restored relationship. You see, even if God hadn't given Job anything, Job still would have loved and Job still would have trusted in God. And we need to also realize that God is not blessing Job here because he owes him. As if God's saying, oh, I'm sorry you had to go through all that suffering, that hard time. Here, let me give you a double blessing of what you had. That is not what is happening. God does not owe Job one single thing. And the fact that he bestows this kind of double blessing is a sign of how lavish his grace is to his people, not a sign of the fact that he owes Job. This is a chapter, it's just filled with with joy and exuberance. It's a restitution that is made all the more glorious and sweet in the light of the, the backdrop of suffering that we have seen before it. And I know some of you here may read this and you may think, well, well, to be honest, it just, does, it just doesn't seem real. It's a kind of Disney-esque ending. They lived happily ever after. If you're in the midst of suffering, this is probably a million miles away from feeling true to you. Maybe you're still with Job way back in chapter 3. Remember what he was like then? Maybe the darkness of depression or the grip of suffering is still quite strong. But don't let your feelings deceive you from what is true. This is profound. The end of Job is so essential for you to grasp if you're a follower of Jesus because it is a reflection of what your end will be. In the end, everything will be all right. In fact, it will be better 
than what we had. It would be better than what Job has here. For all the joy in this passage, there is still something missing. The pain of suffering wouldn't have left Job. It's not now because Job's got ten kids. Do you think he would have forgot his children who had died? He looked at his other ten kids. He still lives in a broken world. Stain of suffering, the wounds that it inflicted on his soul will still be there. And just at the end, you notice that in verse 17, just at the end, Job dies. Death is still present. Job wanted something more than this. Remember chapter 19, he wanted to see God after death. In order for us to get that what we have is greater than this, in order for us to grasp that our end will be infinitely more glorious than Job's, that our suffering is producing for us something eternally more wonderful, that the stain of suffering and that the curse of death will be gone forever, we need to get our heads, first of all, into the person whom Job foreshadows, and that is the Lord Jesus. That's the second point, the suffering and exaltation of God's Son. One of the things, if you've been with us, if we've been going through Job, that we've been really trying to hammer home, and I think it's an essential point, uh, it's something that Christopher really helped me understand in his book, is that Job, although a real person, is nevertheless meant to be a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, Job is he's, he's unique in many regards. God singles him out, out of every single human being on the planet. His, his righteousness is unique, His suffering is quite unique. It's it's extreme in what happened to him. He is the innocent, suffering servant of God. And he is a picture of Jesus whose righteousness was perfect because Jesus is God and whose suffering was the most intense, the most extreme, and the most painful suffering that any human being has ever gone through and ever will go through. Jesus is God. A God who comes down as one of us and suffers. And by the way, this is immense. The most profound thing that the Bible has to say on suffering is the fact that God himself has suffered. We worship a God with wounds. And boy, when you grasp that, it it really changes everything. It's mind-blowing. But do you notice the pattern that we see here in Job? This is the pattern. Job is blessed, and then he is brought low by his suffering and humbled. And then God raises him up and he is doubly blessed. And that pattern is important because I think that is exactly what we see in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. Turn forward with me to Philippians chapter 2, page 980 of the church Bibles. Philippians uh, chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 5. This, this, is, this is an incredible poem, incredible piece of theology. Philippians chapter 2 verse 5. Paul writes to the Philippian Christians, Have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, 
and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Did you see, do you see the pattern there? Jesus is God. He is equal with God. He's blessed, exalted. What does he do? He humbles himself by becoming a human being. God is a human? Oh, Paul goes further. No, he humbles himself even further by suffering and dying. And then he goes even further. No, no, he humbles himself by dying even on a cross, the most humiliating and painful way you could die. And what does God do as a result of that? Raises Jesus from the grave and exalts him. It almost hyper-exalts him. So that even in the state before he came as a human being, Jesus is an even more exalted and glorious state. It's the name of Jesus now that we worship and confess. He has replaced the Old Testament name Yahweh. It's the name Jesus Christ that is exalted. There's a a hyper-exaltation almost that Paul's conveying here. Suffering Jesus experienced for a little while. Glory, exaltation, restoration he has for all eternity. And we need to see that. We need to grasp that before, before we think about ourselves and, and what this means for us. Because the New Testament is clear. If you want to follow Jesus, you have to follow his pattern of life. And Jesus' pattern is the same as Job's pattern. Suffering first, then glory. Listen to these words of Paul in Romans eight seventeen. This is marvelous. Write this verse down. Paul says this, we are heirs of God. So you here in church, if you follow Jesus, you are heirs of God. That means that you are are, are entitled to the inheritance of your heavenly father. What's that? That's everything. We are heirs of God, Paul writes, and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we might also be glorified with him. That's the pattern the Christian follows. Anne-Marie, who Robin was talking about, suffering illness for a little while. Death is not her end. Glory is. Eternal glory with her Savior. And this is what we see in our final point. The suffering and exaltation of God's people. What happened to Job here happened to Jesus on an infinitely greater scale, and it's what's going to happen to us. If you turn to God in repentance and you say, Jesus, forgive me for what I have done. If you have that humble, repentant heart that Job had in these verses, then the Bible is clear. You are forgiven. You are justified. And that means that like Job, you are in right standing right now with God. Like Job, you are accepted before God. Like Job, you'll be greatly blessed by God. But not now. 
Yes, there's some blessings we can get now, benefits that we can see now that are wonderful, but the full realization of these blessings, of our justification, of our acceptance, will only be fully recognized after we die. In the end, everything will be all right. But for now, for now we may have to face many difficulties, the loss of loved ones, the battle against incurable illnesses, the fracturing and the breakdown of relationships, the pain of rejected love, the hopeless, hopeless feelings of depression, the loss of dignity, insults and hardships and danger and ridicule. All of that will happen to varying degrees in our lives as Christians. And for some Christians, it seems, it just seems that their whole life is marked out with terrible pain and suffering, and we don't know why. Do you realize something? We're at the end. God hasn't, not once, told Job why he suffered. Not once does Job find out why he went through what he went through. When will God tell you why you had to suffer what you did? Maybe never. Think of great missionaries like the man Jim Elliot, who who wanted to do great things for God. Um, a selfless man of God who was going to be a missionary to a tribe of uh, Indians in Ecuador that had never heard of Jesus. What a great thing to do. What a wonderful thing that God could use for his kingdom. And as soon as he gets there, him and his fellow missionaries are speared to death. Why? This man had a a family. Why? Uh, I don't know. But I do know this. I do know Jim Elliot said these words. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He gave what he could not keep, his life. He gave that to Jesus to gain what he could not lose. And what was it that he could not lose? It was Jesus. And when you get Jesus, you get everything. And here's the great truth about suffering and evil and injustice and darkness that we see in this chapter of Job. It will end. And it will end in blessing for the follower of Jesus. Suffering will end and glory will be eternal when we are at last with Christ. Don't think of this as some kind of ethereal reality. Eternity with Jesus is not something uh, which we're kind of just floating about. It will be real. It will be, as C.S. Lewis said in The Great Divorce, more real than this world. I don't know what that means, but I think there's something in that. Be something more real about our eternity with Christ. Real joy and happiness. It will be when all death and suffering and pain and anguish are gone forever and nothing but the continual blessing of God is poured out on his people. Job here enjoys real fellowship, doesn't he? With real physical blessings. He experiences real joy in his children. Real beauty in his daughters. And real celebration with his brothers and sisters. And that is what we'll have. It's a real new creation, the Bible calls it. A physical place with food and joy and beauty and celebration and laughter and song. And what makes it so amazing is that it's a place of real fellowship with God. Finally restored at last. 
with Jesus my Savior. I remember um, hearing one prominent uh, atheist uh, say that he thought the idea of heaven was ridiculous because many good things need to come to an end for them to be good. And he compared it to eating a cake. He wanted to finish, which is a ridiculous thing to compare eternity with Christ to. I just want to say, you know, have you ever been in a relationship? Because when you're in that relationship, you don't want it to end. You want it to grow and to magnify and to become greater. And that's what it's like in heaven, to be in a relationship with Christ, perfectly restored, constantly growing in love and joy. Look, this this truth, this truth of the new creation, which is guaranteed for you if you're a follower of Jesus, if you've asked for forgiveness of sins and been repentant like Job, is not some sort of compensation for having a life of suffering. That's not it. That's not what it was here in Job. Rather, what is happening now in our lives is that God is using our suffering to heighten our joy in the life to come. Suffering will be a servant of our joy, and it will make it all the more greater. That is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4.16. He says this, for this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory that is beyond all comparison. It's light and momentary, Paul calls it. You may be thinking, well, Paul doesn't know suffering. Well, here was a man who received 39 lashes, almost to the point of death. He was stoned. He was beaten up constantly. He was almost killed, shipwrecked, constantly in danger, had nights where he had no sleep, moments of starvation. He was cast out in the cold, homeless, plagued by great anxiety and hurt and torment. And Paul looks at all that and he says, it's light and momentary. In the scope of eternity, it's light and momentary. And all of it is not pointless. Suffering is not pointless if you follow Jesus. Rather, it is preparing to give weight to the glory that you will receive, which is beyond comparison. Let me close by saying this. Just as we close, the entire book of Job one example of endurance. God is merciful and compassionate to his people. Do not let suffering blind you to that big picture. It is a small, it's a passing shadow compared with what you will have for all eternity. It is never pointless. It's never senseless. We can't make sense of it. And often God won't tell us why, but it's never senseless. See big picture. Remember that. You know the end. You know, do you, do you ever turn to the end of a book, a murder mystery, to read it, to see what happens, because you can't wait? Um, my wife won't watch any film unless I've seen it first, and I can tell her that it's a happy ending. She just doesn't like watching films, she doesn't know the end, um, which ruins it for me. But if you're, in, if you're here as a Christian, if you're in Christ, you know the end. You know the happy ending. Jesus has told you. Jesus has shown you. And it's glorious. In the end, everything will be all right. You are like Job. You are God's servant. So my brothers and sisters, use the book of Job to help you endure. Keep going because a day is coming when your compassionate and merciful God will stoop down with his own wounded hands 
and wipe away all our tears and say to us the words that we all long to hear. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Come now and share your master's joy. Let me pray. Father, thank you so much for this treasure that you have given humanity, the treasure of the book of Job. Father, this world is broken and we are broken and there is suffering and evil and chaos. And it's not just out there, it's in here, in us. We are not removed from the problem, but we are part of the problem And yet you're merciful and compassionate. And in your mercy, Lord Jesus, you took all the punishment that we deserve for our wrongdoings so that our relationship could be restored back to our Father. Father, help us to understand these great truths of what we have in Christ, the blessings that we have, the restoration that is guaranteed Father, help us to to know the end and to keep our eyes fixated on the end, especially in times of darkness. Help us to endure like faithful Job endured. And Lord, we do long for the day when you will fix everything and we will at last be with you. In Jesus' name, amen.